Today we will continue in our summer psalm series, looking at Psalm 7. And as we come to Psalm 7, I want us to see something this morning. That as the Psalter David speaks, we should not merely see a human speaking, but we should see Christ speaking to us. A lot of commentators and throughout church history, they have viewed the Psalms not as primarily man speaking, but as the man, the God-man, Christ. The foundational voice in the Psalms and the underlying base or harmony that we should listen to and listen for is that of Jesus Christ. So as you can just open the Psalm back up and just follow with me this morning. If you look at the top of the Psalms, at the top of Psalm 7, it speaks about David's main problem. And for many of us that might be That's strange. Why do you mean it speaks of David's problem? Well, it describes that it's a song to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. We have no other information about Cush except the fact that he's a Benjamite. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin, which is, we would accept that since Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so it would be natural that the tribe of Benjamin or Saul's tribe would be the people persecuting David. So David's problems come from the tribe which Saul was a descendant of. So as we read about God being David's king, God being David's shield and refuge, God being David's judge, this should be the background at which we're reading it. It's Saul's family or Saul's tribe persecuting David, bringing various charges before David ultimately seeking to destroy him. Yet in the psalm, David pleads with the Lord to, to deliver him from his enemies who are at depicted as ferocious beasts or lions in Psalm 7. And throughout the psalm, we should have this image of a court before us as David pleads his case before the Lord, as well as pleading the case of his enemies or pleading that the Lord should judge his enemies. So we're seeing a court case playing out as we read Psalm 7, which is why the sermon title this morning is Taking Refuge in the Courtroom of God. Taking Refuge in the Courtroom of God. So the first two verses opens with an invocation which tells us and in which David tells the reader the desperate need for deliverance. In this this start of Psalm 7, we see that Yahweh is praised for the fact that he's provided refuge. He's praised that he's the one who saves David. And And in verse 17 towards the end, David concludes by giving thanks for this deliverance. So the psalm opens and closes with the theme of refuge and deliverance. And in between these two themes of deliverance, we find our four points for the sermon today. But before we get to that, I would like to point out something which is quite interesting. The first thing is that we see that the Lord is David's refuge and his deliverer. The Lord is both the one in which David can find safety but he's also the one who makes sure that David is safe. He's both the one holding and keeping David safe, but he's also the one keeping the enemies away from David. And David uses graphic imagery to explain what's going on. He says that his enemies want to tear him like a lion. This is not a quiet or dignified death that David is anticipating at the hands of his enemies. It's a horrific sort of death that David is imagining. He says, if my enemies get a hold of me, they'll tear me apart like a lion would when he finds its prey. So before we get to the main points of the sermon, we're confronted with a reality that I would say for many of us does not ring true. 
I think for many of us, we're not being persecuted by ferocious enemies that attack us like beasts or like lions. Yet believers in persecuted countries like Iran, Pakistan or Afghanistan would read the psalm much differently than we would. They would read the psalm and be like, yeah, that's, that's my experience. I'm experiencing my enemies wanting to destroy me like ferocious beasts. They want to tear me apart like lions. So when it comes to the Lord Jesus, well, we look at his life, especially John 7, which we read this morning, and we see that these words perfectly describe the intent of the religious re- leaders. They were wanting to kill Jesus. Jesus tells them this. Yet Jesus rested on the Lord as his refuge, which is similar to what we find here with David. So perhaps you haven't experienced this. Perhaps if we go out and tell society that pride was the sin that caused the angels to become demons, they would try to destroy us like lions. Or perhaps if we tell this world that the rainbow is actually God's image of judgment on the exact sense that's being celebrated by the rainbow today, well, there won't be a cause for our enemies to destroy us like lions. So perhaps the reason why we don't experience the world wanting to destroy us like the enemies wanting to destroy David is because, well, the words of Christ don't dwell in our mouths as it ought to. And so while this is quite confronting, I would, I would challenge us, at, before we get to the first point of this sermon, that we should pray for courage to speak the words of Christ in this world. And perhaps the reason why we cannot relate to David in this first two verses, that we don't have lions wanting to destroy us, is perhaps... Because the words of Christ don't dwell in our mouths. And I would be the first to say, yeah, it's really scary. It's really difficult. Because none of us want to be destroyed like lions. And so as we start there this morning, let us see what the prayers and the psalms and the songs and the praise of God's people should be when lions come to destroy us. When lions come to tear us apart. So the first point this morning is to start with self-examination. Start with self-examination. So this, this psalm is generally viewed as David asking for the Lord's deliverance. Yet David doesn't start there. David doesn't start with, Lord, there are these lions that want to destroy me. Please save me. No, David protests his innocence before the Lord. I would say that the reason David starts here is if David asks the Lord's judgment on the wicked and he himself is to be wicked, he himself is unrighteous, well then he's asking for the Lord's judgment on himself. So David starts with self-examination. He starts by examining himself to make sure that he is in fact righteous, that he is in fact not the wicked, that he wants the Lord's judgment to be poured out on upon. So in this self-examination, David says that if I do these things which I'm being accused of, let my enemies be victorious over me. It's similar to us saying today, if I'm not telling the truth, may the Lord strike me dead. You know, many times we've heard this, I swear, I swear on my life. Many people would speak like this. This is, this is basically what David is saying. He's saying, Lord, if I did these things, let my enemy be victorious. If I did these things, strike me dead. And David's enemies accuse him of unjust actions. We read that he has taken advantage of his enemy, taken advantage of his adversary. He's being accused of being a bully using his power and influence over his friends and his enemies. And I would say these words most probably wounded David. It most probably hurt David. 
Many of us have had that experience where we're being accused of things that we're unaware we even did. I'm being accused of things that I don't know that I have done. Perhaps I have done these things. And this is what David is experiencing here. Yet David is saying that if I did these things, may my enemy overtake me. May he trample me to the ground and leave my glory in the dust. David again with quite violent imagery. In the first First two verses, we see lions wanting to tear him. And now we're saying, Lord, if I'm guilty of these things, may my enemies trample me to the ground. The word for trample here is the same word that we find in Isaiah when it speaks about the potter mixing clay by foot. Or in Isaiah 63, when we speak about wine being made, wines, um, grapes being crushed underfoot. I mean, we have seen this Black Friday stampedes in big malls in anywhere in the world, people being trampled underfoot. This is what David is asking the Lord to do. Lord, if I am indeed guilty of these things I'm being accused of, let my enemies trample me underfoot. And there's a progression here. It's pursue and overtake me. Let them overtake me. Then trample me into the ground. Take my life from me. And finally, to cause my glory to dwell in the dust. So David is from being overtaken to his body being trampled, to even his glory and honor being placed in the dust. David is essentially asking the Lord not only to destroy his physical body, but if he is indeed guilty, that his glory and his honor may depart or may be put into the dust alongside his body. I would say this, protestation of innocence is compelling because David is essentially asking for death at the hands of his enemy. And this is how we should examine our own hearts before the Lord, not necessarily asking for death. But whenever we pray for the Lord's judgment, or whenever we pray for the Lord to judge rightly, to deal with wickedness, we should start by examining our own hearts to see if there's wickedness dwelling with us, if there's unrighteousness dwelling with us. And David, in verses 3 and 4, while well, he's using the word if, he's saying, if I did these things, this means he cannot really claim absolute moral innocence since he was a sinner. We know David sinned. We know of the various sins David committed. So David isn't coming to the Lord saying, Lord, I didn't do these things. I'm completely righteous. I'm completely without sin. Yet there was one man who could claim with absolute moral Assurity and absolute moral innocence. And that was Christ. Christ, who indeed was trampled into the ground, whose glory and honor was indeed laid in the dust, was morally completely innocent. He didn't have to come before the Lord and say, if I am innocent. Christ came before the Lord completely innocent, willingly laying his life down for us. The very thing David dreads in this psalm is that which Jesus willingly stepped into. The thing we as humans dread, being killed by our enemies or our glory being put to shame, that is what Christ endured for us on the cross. So after examining his own life and establishing innocence, David now turns to the Lord's judgment of his enemies, which gives us our second point of the sermon, which is calling the Lord to judgment. So David uses three imperatives here to call the Lord, calling the Lord in a sense to bring judgment. He says, rise up, lift yourself, awake. And this is interesting since the Lord doesn't really ever sleep. 
the Lord doesn't really lie down. So saying arise is an interesting word being used here by David. But this is a commonly found expression in Hebrew literature or in Jewish culture. And it expresses this preparation for movement. It, it, ta- it has this idea of refocusing your movement or refocusing your thoughts on something else. So basically what David is doing here is he's calling the Lord, saying whatever you've been previously involved in, refocus your concern on my case and prepare to act in judgment. David is saying, Lord, whatever you've been doing, whatever you've been focusing on, Focus on my plight. Focus on the thing which I'm praying for now. We know from Psalm 121 that the Lord never slumbers nor sleeps. So when David asks him to awake, he's saying to the Lord to stir himself up, to become awake, to do that which David is calling him to do. David is essentially calling the Lord to a new action or to prepare to do something different. Since in David's previous experience, he's like, I haven't called the Lord to this sort of judgment on my enemies. Lord, I need you to do this thing which I'm asking you to do. And why does David do this? Why is David confident that the Lord will act justly? Why is David confident that the Lord will be the judge that he sees him as? Well, David tells us it's because the Lord is enthroned. He's the sovereign Lord. David views himself and his adversaries as being in a sort of courtroom before the Lord, where the Lord is the judge. And he continues to ask the Lord to do so. He asks the Lord to decree justice. This, David isn't only asking the Lord to see that David is innocent and to see that his enemies are guilty. But David is saying, Lord, you are the judge of the nations. You are the one who judges the fate of even the nations. Please decree me as an individual, just in your sight. David is doing more than simply asking the Lord to look at past track records. David isn't coming to the Lord to say, Lord, please look at everything that I've done. Look and see whether I'm just or unjust. No, David is recognizing what Job recognized as well, that the very nature of God is justice. The very nature of God is just. He defines justice. He affirms righteousness. He constantly acts to uphold his justice. It isn't as if David has to come to the Lord and say, Lord, there's a, there's a naughty list and a nice list. Can you please see where I stack up? No, David knows that the Lord is always on guard. He's always ready to judge. He's always taking account of what we do. When we look at the Hebrew word for justice, which is misbat. I know many times we don't go too deep into the Hebrew words, but I find it really interesting to see that when we look at this word, it's more than just asking for justice. It's a, it's a word that's almost a pronouncement or a proclamation of justice. So how it works is in the Hebrew culture, you would come with your case and your enemy would come with a case and they would bring out their various points. So you would make your case and he would bring his case and then At the end of this, the judge would make a declaration of misbut, saying, this is where those who are wicked have failed. This is where they have not measured up. This is where they need to improve. And this is ultimately what David is asking the Lord to do, is to declare righteousness. He's asking the Lord to declare him righteous. And verse 8 is surprising. If you look down with me, David starts by saying that the Lord judges the peoples or the nations. 
This is what we find in the book of Revelation where it speaks about the nations being judged. This is an eschatological term, yet David says that. And then he turns to the Lord and saying, but judge me, he's speaking personally. After establishing that the Lord is the judge of all the nations, it's almost a, a very prideful way of coming to the Lord, saying, you're the judge of the nations, now I'm asking you to judge me individually. Yet David believes, having searched his heart, that he has not wronged his friend or his enemy. And because he knows his Lord as his covenant God, he can come to even the judge of the whole world and plead his personal case before the Lord, saying, Lord, I know that you are the judge of the world. You will judge all the nations. Yet please look at my case. I've done no wrong. I've done no wrong to my friend nor my enemy. Pronounce me righteous in your sight. Therefore, David can pray in verse 9. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. And how will the Lord do it? Well, He will examine the minds and the hearts as the righteous God that He is. And while minds and hearts isn't a bad translation, the original Hebrew here refers to the inward parts and the heart of man. This is the point being made by David. God doesn't only judge our actions, but God judges the heart and the inward parts of man. He's able to scrutinize the interior thoughts and emotions of us as humans. And this is why Charles Spurgeon speaking on this verse is correct when he says that this is a solemn and weighty truth which is contained in the last sentence of this ninth verse. How deep is the divine knowledge? How strict, how accurate, how intimate is search? All things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Revelation 19 tells us this. It says that his eyes are like a fiery flame. At the end of days, all things will be laid bare before him. And I think this puts a massive spear through religions like Islam or Buddhism, where they believe that you have to do a lot of good things, and if the good things you do outweigh the bad things that you do, you'll be righteous. We don't believe in a God that judges like that. We believe in a God that judges not only the actions, but the hearts, the inward thoughts of man. And this is why Jesus could say that if you look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery. Or when you hate your brother, it's as good as murdering him. Since God not only judges our actions, but even our thoughts and emotions. And I think for many of us hearing this, this is quite scary. Since many of us don't act that sinfully, yet we know our own thoughts and emotions are deeply sinful many times. Yet, we don't stand on our own righteousness before God. Even though our thoughts, our emotions, and even our actions are sinful, we stand on the righteousness of Christ. We can, like David, confidently ask the Lord to decree judgment, to decree us righteous, because we don't stand on our own works, our own righteousness. We stand on the finished work of Christ. Just as David comes to the Lord, asking the Lord to look at him and his life and bring judgment, we can come to the Lord and say, look at Christ. Look at the work that He has done on my behalf. Look at Christ who is my surety. He has endured the judgment due to me. And believe and trust that the Lord will indeed declare us righteous and innocent. So after calling the Lord to judge His enemies, David now tells us how the Lord prepares for judgment. In verse 11, which leads to our third point, the Lord preparing for judgment. 
So verse 11 explains why David holds this confidence in the Lord. He says that God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath or expresses his wrath every day. This sentence expresses wrath or passes sentence is telling us that he doesn't occasionally sit in court and infrequently just render his judgment. No, what David's hope is, is that Yahweh is constantly overseeing human affairs and declaring misbat or declaring righteousness. David knows that his case will not slide by unnoticed and not deserve the attention that it deserves. One commentator explains this verse well when he notes that God himself is far from lukewarm on the matter of righteousness. His indignation every day is more constant than any human zeal, having no tendency to cool down into either compromise or despair. And this is what we find in the New Testament. In Romans 1, for example, we see that the Lord's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We see this in the New Testament as well as the Old, that the Lord wants justice and judgment more than we do. I mean, when we look at the world, there's so much debauchery and sin that we're, sometimes we're like, Lord, when are you, when are you bringing judgment? Do, do you even care that this world is falling apart? Yet we should take comfort knowing that the Lord wants justice much more than we do. The Lord doesn't get off of his bench as the judge of the universe when things get bad. The Lord is constantly judging. The Lord is constantly fulfilling his seat as the judge of the nations. And I mean, this is the stark reality and certain judgment that unfolds in verses 12 to 16. It tells us that the Lord will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrow with fire. I mean, these are not easy images to come to grips with. These are very militaristic images. I mean, sharpening of the sword. What do you sharpen your sword for? Certainly not to display to people. Stringing and drawing the bow. It means the Lord has strung his bow, making ready, preparing to let it fly with arrows tipped with flames. I mean, this is an imagery given to us by David, which tells us that the Lord is ready to act. The Lord is poised and ready to bring judgment. This picture encourages the enemies of David and of us to reconsider their actions in light of the Lord's readiness to judge, in light of the Lord's readiness to defend His people. Since these images are not just images of justice, but also images that you would find in I mean, any movie that speaks about a castle being Defended. What do you see? You see archers ready to keep the enemies out. These are images of both God's justice and judgment, but also of God's protection of His people. God being portrayed here as a warrior God tells us and our enemies that the Lord will defend His people. The Lord will keep His people safe and the Lord will not relent as the judge of the world. And so where does this leave the wicked? Where does this leave the enemies of God and God's people? Well, we see this in verses 14 to 16. And also our fourth point this morning, the fate of the wicked. The fate of the wicked. 
So after explaining what the judgment of the Lord will look like, and after explaining that the Lord is preparing for justice, David uses various words to speak about evil. He says that the evil ones or those who are wicked are pregnant with mischief. They're saturated with evil so much that they can give birth to it. I mean, this is similar imagery to what we find in James 1. So James 1 tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is what we see here in the psalm. The psalm tells us that they're pregnant with evil. Digging a pit, they fall into it. Ultimately, how sin and those who plan to do wicked fall into the pit that they have dug themselves. How sin leads to death. Sin, essentially, always kills itself. It leads to death every single time. And Jesus also warned us about this. Jesus told us that the heart is the source from which comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. The heart gives birth to sin, and sin ultimately leads to death. It's clear. If we look at verses 15 to 16, it shows us that sin does not produce the desired and intended results. As the enemies of David seek to dig this pit to trap him, they fall into the pit that they have dug themselves. This is what sin does. Sin plans to destroy the people of God, yet God is the one who keeps his people safe. God is the one who makes sure that we're not the ones falling into the pit, that those who have dug the pit will fall into it themselves. Sin is like a person who dug a pit and fell into the hole that he has made. The image here is ultimately that the enemy of God's people and the enemies of God falls into the pit that they have prepared for the people of God. Sin leads to death. The fate of the wicked is ultimately death. We see this in this psalm and we see this throughout the New Testament. If you're sitting here today and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know Jesus. I don't know God like this. Well, your fate is ultimately death. There is no other way. There is no way where you're living a life of sin and somehow you escape eternal death. No, sin ultimately always leads to death. And look down in verse 17. As the psalmist concludes the psalm, he again returns to the theme of the Lord's righteousness. The Lord is praised because he is a righteous judge who can as a result be trusted to exonerate and uphold the righteous while punishing the wicked. When we look at the psalm, the righteousness of the Lord and the justice of the Lord is mentioned several times. And it gives us certainty as the Lord's people that the Lord will, at the right time, at His time, judge the world, judge the wicked as well as the righteous. That we as His righteous ones will be judged and be pronounced righteous, not guilty. We will be told that we can enter into eternal life. This is why David uses the word El Elyon, which means the Lord Most High. We sing about the Lord Most High. There are various hymns and songs which speak about the Lord praise the Lord Most High. And this phrase first appears in Genesis 14, where the Lord is called the creator of heaven and earth. And this is what the Most High describes. This is the description that we find of the Lord in this psalm, that it is the universal rule of God, the Most High. He's higher than any other king, ruler, 
power or authority. The Lord is the most high. This is the God we worship. This is the God we praise. This is the God who sent His only Son to die for us, that we may be pronounced righteous. So as we come to an end this morning, I would like us to return to the two main images that we find in Psalm 7. The one image of the Lord being our refuge and the other one being the Lord being a judge. And I think for many of us, this is a difficult image to hold at the same time, since a refuge is a very comforting image. Yet judge seems to be quite harsh. And the psalmist invites us to find our refuge in the Lord who judges. And for many of us, we feel unworthy to enter into the courtroom of God, the judge of all of the nations who we're also being told is our refuge. I think many times we hesitate to come to the Lord as our judge and our refuge. Perhaps it's because our enemies bring false accusations before us, or perhaps it is even our own sin or sense of shame or guilt that we feel. Many times we don't want to come before the Lord. Yet we see in the psalm and in the New Testament that He is indeed our refuge. He is indeed ready to deliver and save us as His people. But in order for a refuge to be a refuge, in order for a place of safety to be a place of safety, it needs to be entered into. We cannot stand outside the courtroom of God or the throne room of God and expect God to be our refuge. And many times it's the Lord's righteousness or His holiness that prevents us from finding refuge in Him. Too often we understand the Lord's righteousness to mean that He not only judges our sin, but that He also judges our weakness or our ineffectiveness as Christians. That we're like, oh, the Lord's going to judge my, the fact that I've sinned. And as a result, we don't take that step of finding refuge in the Lord. And this is why I think it's so important for us to repent. This is why we as a church believe it's, it's really important that prior to the service, and I find many liturgical services do this, to, to lead worshippers through moments of a corporate recognition or repentance of sin. And then after that comes this undeserved affirmation of you are forgiven. This affirmation of you are seen righteous in the eyes of God because you stand on the righteousness of Christ. When we begin to understand and recognize our sin, yet also understand that the Lord has taken care of and provided a way for our sin to be not only forgiven, but to be completely taken away from us, that we're standing on the righteousness of Christ, then we see the grace that God has provided for us. As we repent and turn to God, we are called to believe that He has forgiven us and that Christ has indeed died for us and given us a share of eternal life. As we turn from our sin and believe in the work of Christ, as the word calls us to repent and believe, to turn from our sin and believe in His work, we no longer have to feel unworthy when we enter into the presence of God, whether it is in prayer or corporate worship. We can boldly enter into the throne room of God. Since we know that we don't come into the throne of God on our own merits. We don't enter into the Lord's presence based on our good works, but we stand on the finished work of Christ. As those who are justified then, we can find refuge in the courtroom of God. Let's pray.